So I hate to start a sermon with bad news, but in times such as these, well, desperate times call for desperate, no, uh, when the going gets tough, I'll just say it this way, next Sunday is Spring Forward Sunday. If you didn't realize that yet, I want to make sure you know it now, and uh, it's going to affect us in here more than maybe even second service, because second service, they can wake, they Really, they're going to be awake by 10.30 in the morning, hopefully, right? And they'll look at the clock and say, oh, time's changed. Look at the cell phone. i got to get the church. They'll get the church. But for us, I mean, it's a 7.30 start next week. And so, anyway, just want to remind you, prepare yourselves. That may not be a problem for you at all. It will be a problem for me. And so, um, hopefully, we'll all make it here on time. That is bad news, but i got some really good news to share with you as well. In fact, last uh, Wednesday night, one of our high school students, Avery Tice, was baptized right here in our auditorium. We have a video of that, so please watch this right now. There's some volume with it, too, if we're able to put the volume up. Any? So it's Avery. She is at AM Consolidated High School. And that was last Wednesday. Well, last Friday, one of our college students, Nancy Lamoglia, was baptized. And we have a video of that too. And so let's go ahead and roll that as well. So I love the fact that while we can't all be here for those baptisms, we can see them on video and you can have a chance to, uh, to, to be a part of that and to share that and to know both those girls and them giving their life to Christ through baptism. What a great, great thing. Hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, I'm encouraged by the chance to worship together for you guys online watching us. Thankful that you can be with us as well. So in 1954, the magazine Popular Mechanics published an article. And in the article, they simply said this. We know someone, sorry, we all know someone who works harder doing nothing than, than most of us work doing something. But we can't possibly know anything that works harder at nothing than a machine built by Lawrence Wallstrom. And they were talking about a machine called the do-nothing machine. And it looks like this right here. It's a machine that... It, in fact, it, it does nothing. It's over 764 gears that rotate, that spin, that move around. It's still in existence today. In fact, this is a video that's modern. It lives in a museum in California. And in a second, it's going to zoom up. And you'll be able to see all of the gears, all of the motions, everything about this machine. He was a clockworker that put it together. But the machine did nothing. It was in newspapers around the country in popular mechanics. It was in Mechanics Illustrated magazine as well. It made the cover of Life magazine. It was on the Art Linkletter show, the Gary Moore show, the Bob Hope show, and around the nation it was known as a machine that does absolutely nothing but sit and spin and move. One newspaper article noted that this machine, which undoubtedly the most complex assemblage of bicuspid discs, which I had to look it up, another name for saying gears, bicuspid disc we have ever seen was designed either by government engineers or a committee 
which is why, as you see, it goes nowhere and does nothing. So today, we're going to talk about what does it mean to have a life that matters? And what does it mean to live a life of purpose and of glory for God? For the last few weeks, and again for the rest of this month, we're we're in a series on some specific psalms. They start at Psalm 120, they go through Psalm 134, and they're called the Psalms of Ascent. You may have never heard that before until we started this series on that, Psalms of Ascent. And there's a a reason for that, But, but these psalms are actually songs. We have the lyrics to them, but they were actually songs that were sung that people had music to and would sing and that were well known. And they were sung on the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish feast. And so some people would go three times a year, go to Passover, um, the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Weeks. And they would sing these songs and maybe they would just go once a year. Some families would only get to go once in a lifetime. But whether they went once in a lifetime or three times, well, think about this. If you're a baby and you're going and your family's taking you, you're on this journey from wherever you lived to Jerusalem, and you're going to Jerusalem, and you're going to worship, and as you go to Jerusalem, your family just starts singing these songs, and there's songs that are just kind of part of the journey. And as you're a baby, you start to learn these songs, and before long, you start to realize, I, I think I know these songs too, and so you sing along with the songs. And, and by the time that you are an adult and, and you're going to Jerusalem with your family still, you know these songs by heart. They are, they are the playlist for the journey that you're on, and, and these songs are some of the ways that the people would focus on God, and they really are focused on God. So I want to do something for a second. I just want to kind of walk you through something. We're going to be in Psalm 127 this morning, but before we do that, I want to, I want to start at the beginning, and I want you to notice how when you look at starting at Psalm 120, how these psalms are focused on God all the way through. So uh, this in the very first line, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Psalm 122 says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Are you seeing the pattern that the Lord is in at the beginning of each one of these? I lift up my eyes to you, meaning the Lord, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. 124, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. We sang that last week. In fact, Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. In Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Isn't that amazing to see that each one of these Psalms, in the very first line of it, they're focused on God. They're focused on the Lord. So if you're wondering what are these songs about, what is the playlist for their journey on the way to Jerusalem? It's about the Lord, and it's about their focus on Him. And so, um, you know, sometimes when you look at it or listen to a song, you can tell a lot about a song by the first line, and sometimes you can't, but in, in these, you can. You can tell what these are about just by the very first line of the psalm, the very first line of this song. And the psalm we're going to look at today is no different at all. In fact, as we look at Psalm 127, you can look along in your Bible or on your, your phone or device, but I'll have it on the screen as well. But this is going to be good this morning. And I want you to be excited because I've got some really exciting things and really cool things that I believe that God has placed in here for us to see and for us to be able to know. So here's Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early. And stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. 
Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. And just starting off, I want to just kind of show you the, the poetic nature of this verse. I want you, I want you to look at this because sometimes this gets overlooked. We look at, at what this is and what it, what it says. So look at verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Do you see the repetition there? Do you see the parallelism that, that Solomon is using as he's, as he's writing this? And, and so you look at it um, and, and imagine singing this song, singing this psalm together with your family as, as, as you're going. There is, there is so much beauty in the psalms that we overlook sometimes. And I think we look at it and we say, okay, yeah, I get that. It, it was the songbook of the Old Testament, the songbook of Israel. But we fail to realize all of the incredible beauty and the poetry that, that takes place in the Psalms. In fact, it's poetry that's repeated even to us that we can see. It's not rhyming poetry. And even the way it was written in Hebrew was not rhyming poetry necessarily. But it's poetry that translates into every language because of, well, like these first two lines. The repetition, the parallelism, sorry, parallelism that we can see. And then you see, um, you see the, the, the word vain there. It's, it's repeated three different times, meaning it's empty, it's fruitless. Um, the builders labor in vain. The guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early. In this, it also later in, in verses 3 and 4 talks about children as an offspring, heritage, reward. They're referring to each other. As, as it repeats this. And Solomon, who wrote this, this is one of two psalms that we really have in the book of Psalms written by Solomon. He's so uniquely qualified to write these, right? Because he was, First Kings chapter 4, he was given wisdom by God, um, one of the wisest, if not the wisest, to ever live. He knew the truth about God, but, and, he, and he was a builder. When it talks about that he built, it was, he knew how to build. He built palaces, he built the temple, he built but for all the good that Solomon was as a, as a builder, he was a disaster sometimes relationally. And, and so much of the time, the things that he knew that God had shown him were things that, that he didn't live up to. And so while Solomon's uniquely qualified to speak to us through this psalm because of his wisdom, he's also uniquely qualified to speak to us because he just didn't get it right sometime. And he knows what it's like for someone to build in vain. And so, I want you to notice something here. Can we put those two verses up, uh, kind of side by side, the two boxes in the top, top left and bottom right? I want you to notice, um, sorry, the two sets of verses, yeah, right there, thank you. I want you to notice here that this psalm kind of looks like it's two different psalms written together. It's like, okay, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, unless um, the guard stands watch of the city, unless the Lord watches over the city, the, the watchmen stand watch in vain. And then, and then it's like he gets distracted and stops. And he goes off and does something else for a while, and he comes back, and he starts writing about children. And he said, okay, well, offspring are a heritage from the Lord. And it's almost like he was writing something, and he comes back, and he's forgotten completely what he's writing about. But I, I want to show you, and I want, I want you to know this morning, that as you look at this psalm, I think it really is written in its entirety with one thought all the way through. I don't think it's just this separate thing. We have builders, we have watchmen, we have toil, and we have you wake up early, you go to bed late, and then, oh, by the way, Let's talk about our children for a while. Let's talk about these arrows, and let's talk about the reward that they are from heaven. It's that this psalm, from beginning to end, has this one 
connected thought all the way through. And it's not a distracted thought, and it's not separate, and it is not two distinct thoughts, but from beginning to end, it's one complete thought. And I'll just give you a hint of where we're going, and it's this, that there's a difference in a house built on vanity and a home built on value. There's a difference in a house built on vanity and a home built on value. So, okay, so let's look at verses 1 and 2 specifically here for just a second. And I want you to notice that as you look at this and as you look at these verses, that the psalm begins by highlighting God. Unless the Lord, the very first line in there, unless the Lord, if the if Lord is not involved, if the, if the Lord is not included in the things that we're, we're doing, it's, it's a God-saturated view of life. We look at building, the creating, and preserving. Can we go back to where those two... Um, yeah, so um, building and, and preserving, and then the second thing, watching over the city, that's, that's the preserving part of that. That's, our, that's our work that we are, that we're doing. You know, you could look at this, and um, you could look at this and say, okay, is this talking about a physical structure? Is it the house? Is it really a house that he, he wants it to be built so well, or is it talking about what's happening inside the house? What's happening inside the building? So in the Old Testament, sometimes we see the word house to refer to something going on inside of it, kind of a synonym for what's happening inside, and that's what's happening right here. And you notice that when it says um, the builders labor in vain unless the Lord builds the house, well, we know that God's not there with the hammer in his hand swinging the hammer. You know, literally, he doesn't wield the weapon over the city and, and as he's guarding the city, but God's involved in both of those things. And so the meaning here is the relationship built on him. The relationship built on obedience to him. The relationship with God has got to be the defining the mental, the emotional, the relational, the spiritual guide for every decision if the home is going to stand firm. He's the unseen architect of the house. He's the unseen guardian of the home. He's got to be trusted completely. Otherwise, it's all in vain. The builders labor in vain. The guards stand in vain. So I want to, for a second, let's look at the characters of this psalm and look at what it's talking about. So if we look at the whole psalm in its entirety again, we see that when you get to verse 3, that we have children that are here. So children are, are, are some of the people that are pictured in this. And so again, if we're going to talk about this being a home and not just a house, the children are a part of the house. You look down in verse 5, and you see the man that's a part of this as well. So you've got the children, you've got the man. If you look at verse 1, you've got the Lord who's a part of this home, a part of this. So those are the characters in the house, but there's something else that you, you miss if you just look over this, and it actually happens in the second part of verse 3. So second part of verse 3, look at those words, where it says, offspring, a reward from him. And, and you've got to know that as you look in the NIV and some other translations as well, they're, they're looking at something here, and, and they're talking about children that, that are an offspring but the literal way that this is written in the Hebrew is translated in some better ways. And so I put these other translations up for you that you can see. So the literal standard version of the Bible, which is one we don't look at very often at all. You've kind of got to go looking for it to be able to see it. It says, Behold, sons are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. If you look at the Net Bible, the New English Translation Bible, yes, sons are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is is a reward. If you look at the American Standard Version, it says, children are a heritage of Jehovah, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And you look at those others as well that are some very literal translations. It talks about fruit of the womb, and that can only talk about one other person being in the house, and that's the mother. And so as we look at this, we have the children who are the heritage of the Lord. We have the wife who is, is the one who is the only one 
who can produce the offspring with the help of the husband. And then we have, verse 5, the man. And so those are the people that are in this home. And, and, and it talks about the blessing, the reward that, that these are. But you need to know that um, if you don't have a home that children are in, so if you're, if you're single, if you um, are, are married and don't have children, if, if you're single and plan to be single all your life, this is not saying that there are not blessings from God because God blesses every single one of us in whatever ways he chooses to and his ways are always perfect. So this is not in any way limiting the blessing of the Lord, but this is specifically about a home and this is specifically about a home that has a married couple and has children, um, but the principle of the psalm is for everybody. And the principle of the psalm is that whether you're young or old or single or married, the question for you is, are, are you building your home on the foundation of the Lord? And is God the center of your home? Because the home was God's idea. It, 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 was, it was family that was God's idea. Society was God's idea. In fact, love was God's idea. It wasn't something where this concept just originated and, and out of man's own thoughts. It was God that said to the Israelites that I have loved you with an everlasting love. In 1 John 4, it talks about that we love because he first loved us. Same chapter, we read that God is love. And in that same chapter, we read that love is of God. And so God is the one that had the idea of love and marriage and family and home. It was all God's plan from the beginning. You never read in the Bible that man one day had this great idea you know, I could probably get a tax break if I would get married and maybe have some kids in my home. And so he does. And why does this matter? It matters because if this was man's invention, then, then we could regulate it. We could maybe define it on our own terms. We could decide what we ever wanted to. If it was man's invention, we, we could tamper with it all that we want to. We could tweak it. We could redefine it. We could nullify it all we want. But family was God's idea. And putting together the family was, was something that came straight from God, and love was God's idea. And so this is not something that we can look at and say, ah, I've got a better way, because there is not a better way. You look also in verses 1 and 2, and, and you look at this, and it says that it's the Lord, and notice that it's capital, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when you ever see that in the Old Testament, it's significant. It's not the generic name for God. It's not the general name for God. It's the covenant name from God. It would be pronounced Yahweh in Hebrew. And I'm bringing that up again because this is the Lord's idea. It, it was the Lord, the covenant God, that, that decided what family would be like. It was the covenant God that created love and created family and put a covenant between us and him, but also put a covenant between people so that there would be the context that they could come together in a family, that they could marry, they could have children. He is the architect. He's the blueprint maker in any home and any family. This is incredibly significant. So this is about family and this is about home. It has implication to Jerusalem and to the temple, but if you look at this, I think the symbolism that, that, that Solomon is using here is all focused on life of a home and does the home and does the family point toward God. So if that's the case, here's a question. How are you doing with your homework? How are you doing with the work at home that God has given to you of focusing on God and focusing on the Lord in your home? And you might be confused because, again, it says, well, the Lord builds the house, and absolutely, he does. 
He builds the house when we stand alongside of him. He builds the house when we love him and focus our lives on him and help um, glorify him in the things that we do. So let me give you two kind of takeaways from this psalm that I think are, will be pretty helpful. And the first is this. The Lord himself is to be the center of our home. The Lord himself is to be the center of our home. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's the builders labor in vain. And, and the second one is this. The Lord himself must be the center of our life and our work. And so at home, you can work yourself crazy trying to build the, the best home, the best family, the best whatever. But if you're doing it outside of God, you're not going to be incredibly successful at that. And the same thing is true about our work. You can rise early, you can stay up late. But if we do this outside of a focus on God and outside of a desire to walk in His ways, um, then, then the result of those selves, those will never result in a godly, happy home. Um, for those of you who don't know me very well, you may not know, I, I don't like to waste things at all. I don't like to waste time. I don't like to waste energy. I don't like to waste days. I don't like to waste money. So when I go to the grocery store and I get at the checkout line, I start looking up and down across the, across the way just to see which line is going to be the shortest. What's the fastest way I can get out of that store? And even if I've taken all day shopping and relaxed and taken my time, I'm still, I get to the front, I want the fastest line, I want to get out of here quicker. And so I'll, I'll look at the lines and look at how many people are, are in the lines. And I'll look at, do I think that that cashier, that, that person that's, that's checking people out, are they going to work fast? Are they just going to kind of lollygag around a little bit? And, and, he, and I've gotten pretty good at this over the years, admittedly. I'll just go ahead and brag on myself. I'm pretty good at looking over all the aisles, shortest and the quickest, and so I'll get up there, but there is a problem I have. And the problem is that once I get in line, I'm not content just to stick with that line and just to go on. I start looking at the other lines just to see if I made the right choice or not. Is anybody else with me on this? Anybody else do this? Okay, one person. Great. Okay, so as I'm doing that, and... and H-E-B makes it harder, right? Because they're the, between the aisles is kind of tall. You've got to stand on your tiptoes to be able to see if that line's moving faster than yours or not. But I, I get there, and I want, to, I want to go fast. And the same thing may be true when I pull up to a stoplight. You pull up to a stoplight, and, and there's two, two lanes, maybe three lanes. There's a car right here in front of you, but this lane, it's empty. This lane is calling for me. I need to drive my car into this lane because I've got just one car length, and it's not that I'm going to faster than them, and it's not that I'm in a real big hurry, but I just feel better when I don't feel like I'm wasting my time sitting behind someone else. I can just be over on the side. And so to me, the idea that Solomon is, is speaking here of building something in vain, spending all my time, all my energy, and it to all be for nothing, man, that really does speak to me. That really does become a horrible thought to me that I would spend my work, that I'd spend my family thing, and it would all be in vain. In, in verse 2, what it describes in this poetic fashion here is it talks about the artificial lengthening of days. In vain you rise up early. In vain you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those who love. And it's just simply saying if, if God's not involved in it, or if God's not a part of it, then it's, it's all for nothing. Um. It's a little tricky there when it says toiling for food to eat. So I wanted to add in some other translations of what they say here. So look at this, where it's got that it, it's, 
eating the bread of sorrows or to eat the bread of anxious toils. It's not just talking about that you would just have to work and, and everything. It's, it's that idea that you work, and as you work, and you're working, your, you're working yourself so hard. It's such a difficult task. You're working so much, and there's just nothing that's coming to show for it. You're, you're maybe getting the bread uh, to eat. You may be getting some, some possessions here or some money that comes from it. But it's, it's the bread of sorrows. It's not bringing the joy that God brings. It's not bringing true fulfillment that God can bring. And so when he's saying that, and he says, you rise up early, you, you stay up late, we would think, well, that's a great thing. I can work more. I can get more done. And he's saying, no, when you do this, it's just leading to sorrow. It's leading to more anxiety because your heart is not focused on the Lord. And yet at the end of it, he throws in this, he grants sleep to those he loves. God works with us. God blesses us. God gives us rest where we're not having to work so hard for nothing, but we can work, we can honor and glorify him with that. And look, this is not to say that work is bad because work is actually good. In fact, if you don't know this, before the fall, work was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. But here is what the problem. When we elevate good things to God things, they become bad things. And so if we elevate our work to a level that God should be at, it becomes a bad thing because we've placed it at a higher priority than it should be. Same thing's true with school. Same thing's true with anything in life. If we elevate good things to God things, they become bad things in our life. We think they'll give us significance. We think they'll give us our purpose and our meaning. And, and we've taken something good, something from God, and we've elevated it to a level that it's not meant to be. Okay, let's look at the next three verses in this and the last three verses of the psalm. And, and I, I want you to notice what it says about children here. Because it says some specific things about children. There's three words, and I hope you can see them. So one of them is that it's a heritage. Children are a heritage. They're a reward from him. And then verse 4, they are arrows. They're like arrows with that. And as, as we talk about this, I want you to notice that, that you know, there's many people that consider children to just simply be a product of biology. They, they just come and... and and they're a part of our life, but Psalm 127 tells us something different. It tells us that they're a heritage from the Lord, that they're a reward from Him, and then they're, they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. If you've had children, or if you one day will have children, or know much about children, you know that they don't belong to the parents, they belong to the Lord. And parents have been entrusted with these children for what seems like a very few short years to to guide and direct and to love and to teach and to instruct and to raise. And then one day, like arrows, as we point them in the direction that they should go, we launch them into life and let them live the rest of their life. So what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is incredibly important when he says this. He says, fathers, bring up your children in the training and instruction of... Bring up your children in the training and instruction of your favorite hobby the best sports team, your political viewpoint, financial success. He doesn't say any of those. He says, fathers, and he specifically directs this to, to us as dads. He says, fathers, bring up your children. That's the primary. That's got to be the most important part. So when we look at other things and when we start placing other things at a higher priority than God, then we are turning away from the most important thing that we're supposed to teach our kids, and that is to love and follow the Lord. Obviously, we teach them how to live. 
We teach them how to love. We teach them how to serve. We teach them how to be profitable in this world and in society. We teach them how to work and how to play. But if anything rises to the point where it's more important than what we do to teach them to love and follow the lake of change in what we're doing. Um, and let me just say also that God never says, as long as you just bring your children to church, it's going to be okay. They're going to get all the information they need about me, and they'll be fine, and you can take care of everything else. I've said this before, it's been a while though, that if you count the number of typical hours your children might be at church in a week, it's about four hours a week, and that's if they come every time the doors are open. If you send your kids to school, they're in school maybe about 35 hours a week, and so if you don't know this about me, I, I have a degree in math, and so as I look at those, I look at numbers, and I say, well, I wonder how many hours that would be. So I did the math one day, and I said, the number of total hours that you'd be in school from kindergarten to your senior year, and compare that with the number of hours you'd be at church if you say you come to church four hours a week for all of a lifetime. By the time your kid graduates from high school, they'll have about the equivalent of a middle of a first grade education when it comes to their, what they would learn at church and what they would, with the knowledge they would gain from here. Now, I know that there is summer camp and there's other things that, that help with that, and, but I also know that we're not always at church every single week and there's vacations, there's times away, or there's sick days. And so what I'm saying is this, if we're trusting church to be the ones that translate faith to our kids, it's going to be not something that is going to work out successfully for them. We're going to be raising some really immature followers of Christ. But it's not just our kids, the same thing is true for us. If we look at the time that we come into this building and the time we worship together with our other brothers and sisters in Christ is the only time that we would grow in faith, or the only time that we would look to the Lord, or the only time we would be in His Word, that we are going to be immature in our faith as well. Because while we do come here and worship, while we do come here and grow, and that's awesome time, God never meant for it just to be one time on Sunday and walk away, but instead for our lives to be lives of worship and our lives to be lives of growth for Him. So if we're going to have a home that honors and glorifies the Lord, if we're going to raise kids that honor and glorify the Lord, our relationship with God needs to be right. So if you're not walking in the love and not walking in the grace of Jesus, then it's time to turn to Him. There's one more thing I want to talk about before we move on from this idea of kids, and it's this. We always talk about how there's nothing you can take to heaven. You know, there's no U-Haul behind the hearse. There's, no, um, there's, there's nothing that goes into heaven with you from this earth, but there actually is one thing that can, and it's children. Our, our children are the only earthly items that we can take with us to heaven. And so the importance of that in our lives and the importance of what we do with that in our lives, I think, is incredibly significant. So at a foundational level, if you talk about this psalm, we have to realize that Christ must be first. The God needs to be a part of every day of your life, every part of your life. He wants to be a part of your family life. In your home, God wants to be involved in your kitchen. God wants to be involved in the living room. God wants to be involved in the family room. God wants to be involved in the bedroom, in the garage, in your home office, in your entertainment room. He doesn't simply want to be regulated to the nightstand with a Bible on it or to going to church on a Sunday morning. He wants to be a part of every part of your home. So a few years back, someone introduced me to a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a very small, very short, pamphlet-sized book written by someone named Robert Boyd Munger. 
And this book, he said, you need to get it. It makes an incredible difference in your life. And so I, I took his advice and I got that book. And since then, we've shared it with our students. We've done retreats over it. We've had parent and student worships and small groups over looking at this book and the things that it has said. And basically, in this book, Robert writes, he says, you know, when Jesus talks about, I stand at the door and knock, and you remember that from Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. So he pictures that as, as your heart being the door that Christ would knock on. That Christ would knock on the door and you could choose to open your life, open your heart to him or not. And so he, he creates a story about opening your heart and opening your life to Christ. And that Christ would come and make his heart, sorry, make his home inside your life and make his home inside your heart. And so he pictures walking into the home and, and, the, and, and Christ going from room to room to room and looking at the rooms and, and the, the feeling that the author would have as he shows the different, different rooms in his home to Christ or different parts of his heart to Christ. So the first room they go to is the library. And they go to the library and, and in this, the library, Jesus looks around and says, I, I think there's some work that we need to do here. And so he starts to redecorate the library and the things that he was reading, the things that the man was putting into his life and putting into his heart, Jesus starts to change. They go um, next to the, the dining room and goes and, and talks about the appetites this man has, the appetites that he has in life and what appetites Christ would give him instead. And, and Jesus changes his appetites from things that they were to new things that they now are. They talk about the living room and Jesus gets there and says, oh, this is where I'd like to spend some time, fellowshipping with you, getting to know you and letting you get to know me. I promise to be a part of your life. They go to the workroom, to the home office, and Jesus says, I want to be a part of your career. Finally, down to the entertainment room, the, the, kind of the recreation room, and Jesus wanted to redecorate that room as well. In the booklet, he writes this. He says, we went to the entertainment room of the house, and he transformed it. He brought, into, he brought into real life, or brought into life, real joy, new excitement, and new joys. Laughter and music and joy have been ringing in the house ever since. And I love that, that laughter and music and joy have been ringing in the house ever since. When we give Christ our life, and when it's not just something that we say, but it is something that we do, it changes everything. And when you give Christ your home, and it's not just something you say, but it's something that you do, it changes everything. And so if you, and you invite Jesus into your life, he promises to do the same thing. Because he says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. I love the aspect of Jesus being involved and God being the centerpiece of every family's life. And so the question is, is he a part of your home? Have you sincerely asked him to be a part of your life and to be a part of your home and focus on him? To balance your time between work and family, to make him Lord of everything you do, to replace your appetites with better desires? And if you know the teachings of the Lord, you can't help but go to the wise and foolish builders as we talk about this, this psalm from Solomon. That one man came and, and he built his house on a firm foundation that was rock. And another man came and built his, found, his home on a foundation which was just sand. They, they, they built the same house, it seems. They built the same house out of probably the same material. And the storms come and the winds 
um, the winds blow and the rains come and the, the streams rise up and yet one person's home stands, one person's house stands, the other person's house does not stand and the difference is what they are built on. And God's simply asking us one thing. Will you trust him in faith? And will you trust him with your life and call upon him with Lord of your life? So if God builds houses, if God builds homes, if God builds churches, then we'd better look to him as we build our homes, we build our churches, as we build our lives. And our hands may be doing the work of building those homes. Our hands may be doing the work of building those churches, working alongside of him, but our eyes must be fastened upon the hands of God that does the real work in each of those things because only God can guarantee the success in our work. And the secret is that we'd have a life down here that matters up there. And when we see the perspective of life and we see the perspective because up there defines our life down here, it's an eternal perspective that changes everything else in our life. So there's something I've learned through a lot of years of youth ministry and a lot of years of just ministry in general, and that, that, that's that it's never too late to start doing what is right. And it's never too late for the fathers that are working too much or the moms that are um, placing other things at a higher priority or the grandparents that have gotten off track a little bit of a single individual that is, is, has been walking with God but maybe has lost track of some things or the, the student that has done the same thing. It's never too late to turn to God. It's never too late to turn to Him and He's always just that one step away, that one step back to Him and God is right there. We don't build our lives on sand trusting things of this world rather than trusting the things of God. No, we build our lives on obedience to Christ. We build our lives looking to God. We build our lives on what it means to follow his will in our lives, on the foundation of his mercy and of his grace and of his love. We don't build our lives on our job. Your job doesn't love you. We don't build our lives on a team. Your team doesn't even know you. We don't build our lives on our school. Your school didn't sacrifice for you. We don't build our lives on things of the world because things of this world did not come and die and pay a price for the sins and then rise from the grave. Only Jesus did that. Only Jesus is worth building your life on. Work and school and everything else, they have their place. But their place is not the number one place and that is one that belongs only to Jesus Christ. And so the Lord himself is to be the center of our home. The Lord himself is to be the center of your work and of your life. And so we build our lives not in vain. We build our lives on him. We live our lives not in vain. We live our lives trusting in and walking with him. I will build my life on Christ. I will trust in his love. I will trust in him. And I'm going to live for him. That's what Solomon's writing about. It's an incredibly beautiful psalm. And it's one I hope you have a little bit different understanding of now. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for you and thankful for um, the way you love us. 
the way you take care of us, the way you provide for us. And I'm thankful for this call and this reminder today that you would be number one in our lives, that you would be the one that we'd place in the highest priority in the highest place, God, that we would live our lives for you. We admit, I confess, I get so distracted so much of the time. God, forgive us for that. Forgive me for that. Help me, help us to have our eyes focused on you. Help us to live our lives for you. May our homes be homes where you are Lord from beginning to end. And may we glorify you in all that we do. And that's my prayer. It's through Jesus that I pray.